0: Oh, good evening, everybody, and good afternoon, and depending where you are, and uh, thank you very much for this invitation. I really appreciate uh, coming and meeting with you, and uh, although I see some very familiar faces and some long-term relationships I've had with people in AA, and I, uh, it's nice to see each of you. And the people who don't know me, I, I'm calling in from San Antonio, Texas, but I'm actually a Canadian who's visiting here for six months, visiting my family or my son and his family. And I've been here, as I say, for six months and I'm traveling back to Ontario, Canada uh, on Monday. So it's a bit of a change for me where I'm gonna be spending about six months in Canada before I go off to Latin America where I'll be spending six months there. So I'm a bit of a nomad. I like to say that I'm homeless. After 75 years of age, I'm homeless uh i'm a citizen of the world and uh taking on some new adventures and i'm calling this the adventure the joy adventure where i get to meet new people new customs uh, new routines and uh just to experience life and i like to think of it as you know uh being a five-year-old boy seeing a rainbow for the first time and that's what i'm up to and uh Uh, So far, it's just been a great journey. i traveled all over Eastern Canada uh, last year. And as I say, I'm down here in the United States and Texas. I'm soon to be going to Latin America. So friends, uh, for people who don't know me, I am an alcoholic. Uh, I belong to a group called Agape Group. Agape, Agape is a Greek word for unconditional love. And we named that group simply because... You know, we wanted everybody who came and visit with us that uh, they were going to be loved, that we didn't necessarily we would not judge them, nor will we uh, distance ourselves from them. We're just going to care for them and love them. And that, and I, believe me when I say this, the idea of love and care uh, is critically important for the success of somebody overcoming addiction. This may be the only spot where people feel cared for in their life. Maybe they don't have family anymore. Maybe they're alone in the world. Maybe they don't get along with their neighbors. Maybe they're in arguments at work. None of this would apply to you, of course, but uh, uh, addicts tend to have uh, controversial relationships. And uh, we wanted our group very much to be that warm, safe place that people know that they're being cared for. And uh, it's a meditation meeting. And uh, this is some of my talk I'm going to share with you tonight about having conscious contact with God. I, I, I started two meditation groups in my hometown, um, starting about 25 years ago. And I'll tell you exactly why I, was, uh, I started a group. Uh, I was 25 years sober at the time, and I wasn't meditating. Now, I'll tell you, I, I had read a lot of books about meditation. I could tell you how to meditate. And I can give you absolute directions because I read these books and I absorbed them and I made notes and I did all the things when one learning content would do. So somebody said to me, John, could you tell me how to meditate? And I said, sure, I can. What I couldn't do was to share the experience of meditation. So today, my hope is that i will be able to share some of that with you today. What I tried was doing, I was I was a little bit embarrassed back then because here I was professing to rework on the 12 steps and I wasn't meditating. And, and I tried to meditate, uh, but I was trying to do it on my own. I don't know if anybody can identify with this isolation kinds of view of life, that you gotta do it by yourself. You gotta do it alone. You gotta do it quietly. Don't tell anybody what you're up to, for goodness sakes, because you might fail and you'll be embarrassing. So I started a group of like-minded people to begin to have a community around me that will allow me to live into this idea of meditation. And you know what? It works. Having a like-minded community, uh, as we do in AA, uh, works. The peer-to-peer kinds of conversations that we have. So sometimes what we have to do is not only have the community of AA, but inside the community, we need to have little minor or micro communities. People who are working the last three steps, as an example, who are really into that. They're trying to do it on their own. What they're gonna find is that uh, they're going to be distracted and uh, so on. But if you belong to a group of people or inner circle of people who have the same interests as you, then you're more likely to succeed. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, and I apologize. get a little bit excited when I get to share my experience with you. The other thing I'd like you to know about me, I'm in my 50th year of sobriety. December of this year, I am celebrating 50 years of sobriety, if you can imagine. I know I don't look that old. Okay, I get it. I get it, but I am. And uh, the reason I share that with you is not so much to brag, but to share with you, because if it's possible for me a day at a time to stay sober for 50 years, what the message is, it's possible for you. And whether you slipped or whether you're coming back again and again, keep coming. Keep coming. Because the conversation will start changing your life, sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly. But the magic happens is if we keep willing to come back. The other piece of information I'd like to share with you is about, about isolation, this emotional isolation. Whatever you're afraid of, whatever you're, what's behind the curtain with you, have the confidence and the courage to speak out to some people, because you're not alone, you're not. You know, we think so many times that we're different and unique, but we're not. We share our human experience, And particularly in AA, where we share a common experience called addiction. And the more we can get used to that idea that we share something with other people, that there's nothing to hide. And the more we can let go of and become open and be vulnerable, the more we heal. See, it's our secrets that keep us ill. It's our secrets that somehow nag at us all the time. It's what we're trying to hide that hurts us. And the beautiful thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a conversation, a healing conversation where you're not being judged. Now, I don't mean to say that you need to talk about everything to everybody. But have four or five people who you trust and share with them as often as much as you can so that you can get out this gunk, this garbage, this, this past experience that you've had and be able to allow yourself to heal. Now, my topic today uh, is the great fat. Uh, and before I start, let me just touch a little bit about my drinking because frankly, it's, it's not that i have forgotten about what I was like, but I, I really, The distance of time has me, that it's not very impactful to me anymore. But I can tell you this, and I can tell you this with certainty, that I am an alcoholic, that alcohol controlled my life. It was a slave master to me. It was my way out of feeling pain, that I had to numb, that I couldn't deal with life on life's terms, that I had to become distracted. The only way I knew how to feel better about myself was to drink. You know, that sense of comfort and ease. You know what I mean? That restless and uh, uh, discontent and irritability was there and existed in me at the level of unconscious. I didn't know I was experiencing this. But all I knew was, and I could put it in today's terms, that I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I was different. I felt different. I didn't feel good enough. And the only thing that solved my problem for me in that moment was that alcohol. But it's funny, the thing I used as a friend, uh, a thing that I used to help me, it came back and bit me and bit me hard. I lost everything. Any self respect that I ever had, anything that I wanted to build together in my life was gone. I was losing the love of the family. You know, it's funny about. I hurt the people that I loved the most. I harmed them because they didn't know. They didn't know what I was up to, what I was going to say, where I was. Uh, And that's my experience. Now, I know you know this, and that's why I don't like spending a lot of time on it because we didn't come here to share drinking stories. What keeps us here is recovery. That's That's the glue that binds us is this idea that, that, my God, if you can do it, I can do it. You see, I came in here hopeless. I had learned helplessness. i tried to quit drinking many times, and it always ended up the same place. I went back drinking again. So it's learned helplessness. I had no confidence that I could stay sober. And something amazing happened. The first night that I went into AA, I found hope, hope because there was a room full of people that were no different than I, that weren't special. They were staying sober. At least they told me they were staying sober. The speaker got up and spoke and he was telling this this horrific story about guns and police and so on. And uh, I thought, oh my God, everybody's laughing. He's laughing. I thought, "What, what, what is this all about? But what I took away was it's possible this is possible for me, and here I am, all these many years later, here, sharing with you what's possible in an ordinary life, a life that was helpless, a life that was full of fear and anxiety and upset, the worst kind of fear, by the way, that's a fear that I didn't know I had because it was with me for so long. I grew up in it. It's like what the fish doesn't recognize the water it swims with. I didn't recognize the amount of fear that I had. And I come to this program broken, bankrupt, if you like. And yet, here's here's the irony. I came with resistance. I came with defiance and resistance. wanted to defend my ideas and opinions, even though those opinions got me into all kinds of trouble. You see, that's the insanity of what I'd like to present to you today is this idea that I was going to defend the way I thought and the way I felt and not to defend my behavior, and yet I was broken. Insanity. Insanity. So let me just draw up so we have kind of a theme of what we're talking about today and why I chose this great reading. Interesting enough, it happens in the chapter of There is a Solution. Isn't that interesting? Memorize that title. There is a solution. Oh, I have a problem. Guess what? There is a solution. I love that title. It reminds me, no matter what circumstance that I'm in or what situation I find myself in, that there is a solution. So it says here in the middle of the page of 25 is that the great fact is just this and nothing less. Just kind of reflect on that idea. The great fact is just this and nothing less. In other words, there's no boundaries of more. It's limitless. It's possible. It's, it's, it's something that, that has no boundaries. See, the great fact is just this and nothing less. That we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. Page 25 of the Big Book, talking about have had deep and effective spiritual experiences, which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and towards God's universe. Friends, absorb this paragraph reflect on it, see what's possible for you in meditating on this paragraph. See, we have had a a deep and effective spiritual experiences, plural, which have had revolutionized our whole attitude toward life. Now, am I trying to change? Am I working on my defects of character? Am I putting more effort, more knowledge and working at this harder? Well, this, this paragraph kinda says that there's something happening to me, that it's not, I'm not making it happen. It's happening to me. Towards our fellows and towards God's universe, the central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator had entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do by ourselves. So who's doing the work here? Who's actually, what's happening in this, in this spiritual, mystical kinds of experiences that were happening in this transformation called addiction? Well, that paragraph kind of outlines the structure in which I'm operating in. Oh, yes, I have to do the work. I have to do what we would call the work. I have to do my, my inventory. I have to do my amends. I, I, I need to talk to another person, another human being about the exact nature of my wrong. Yeah, I, have to, I need to do that, absolutely. However, what's behind it is this absolutely miraculous and transformative thing that's occurring to me if I allow it. Now that's a big word, allowing it. What does it mean to allow? You see, I'm still trying to be an egocentric, self-centered individual, even though my intentions are good today. But I'm trying to live a life through my eyes, my agenda. And yet that may be inauthentic for me because it's not living the life with the purpose and meaning that maybe God has for me. But I have no room for God because I'm playing God, and I'm trying to etch out, if you like, a kind of life which I imagine is the right life for me. See, I'm not allowing that higher power really to ferment and intoxicate me with this love that we're talking about here. I am trying to do it on my own. Now, what do we learn? What do we learn in the first step? We learned that we're powerless. Now here's the disconnecting string of pearls for me. I admitted I was powerless over alcohol, that my life was unmanageable. But then I went ahead and tried everything in my my universe to manage my life. What what happened? Why didn't those two pearls get connected? I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable to allowing God to manage that life for me. See, I didn't see it that way. So there had to be a level of power that I retained and tempted to control in my life. And therefore, my result was limited because I was just trying to be John. I was just trying to figure this whole thing out. You know, if I only knew a little bit more, if I only went to one more meeting, and if I only had one more sponsee, if I would just to a more speaking, you know, if I, if I did more service work, perhaps then, then the light would come on. You see? No, 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 no. I'm headed, excuse me, in the wrong direction. This is about the spirituality of dissent, not about elevating anything. It's about admitting the powerlessness of what I was trying to control, (coughs) which I didn't have the ability to control. You see? So I had to dig deeper in this idea of powerlessness, that I am powerless. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, I can... My life improved because I wasn't drinking anymore, so I could pay my rent on time, pay the hydro bill on time, drive my car and pay the finance company and so on. So I would say to myself, well, I can control that part of my life, but that's just the surface stuff. Down deep, where I am unconsciously, I was still being self-centered. And I didn't have the resources or the ability to change that because it was too deep. But there's somebody else. There was something else available to me if I only allowed it. And I can only allow it if I was really practicing the powerlessness of it, that I am powerless and that I need a power. You see, Bill's brilliance, Wilson's brilliance is this idea of power. What I lacked is power. It wasn't intention. It wasn't even knowledge. It was power. And now I had an opportunity through these simple steps to gain a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity, to soundness of mind, that I could live a functioning life, a full functioning life. That was possible for me. Well, this is a great revelation for me, my friends. I have to tell you, because I thought, and I proved that I was nuts. Like a friend of mine says, we are ridiculous. And I am ridiculous in some of the thinking that I occurred in the way I treat my feelings. Powerlessness. What is it you're trying to control? We're all trying to control something. It's not something that we, this is my experience, it's not something that we do as an event one time. I'm still learning things that I'm trying to control. And it shows up where? It shows up in restlessness, irritability, and discontent. I can promise you every time I'm restless, irritable, and discontent, I'm trying to control something in which I have no power. And the longer I'm sober, the the longer I practice these ideas, the more I get to see. I don't have the blind spots I used to have, but I still have blind spots. And the beauty of this thing is I've never been this age before, so everything's new to me. So being almost 75 years old here, I've never been 75 years old. So I don't know what it's like being 75 years old, so it's a bit of a mystery for me. Therefore, I'm learning how to be my age. I'm learning about new circumstances that come into my life. See, living a life in the second part of life is very different than living life in the first part of your life. Very different, very different agenda. And when you're my age, what you can see is the deadline. The, the, the goal line, if you like, it's close, I can see it. And there's an urgency here, an urgency to be finally free, to thrive and flourish of this gift called life. This is what's available to me. And that's what gets me excited. So here we are re-examining powerlessness and looking for areas that I'm still trying to control. So what do, we, what do we do with that? So we start suggesting this idea of a higher power. Wilson kept away from this idea of God and everybody associating God with religion because he knew it was controversial. And what he did was he started us on a spiritual journey by looking for a higher power. A higher power, we say in AA, can be anything. It's entirely up to you what you call a higher power. I'm not here to convince you that my Christian God is the answer for you. I don't think that way. It's the answer for me. I've gone back to my traditional childhood religion and celebrate that fact, but I'm not here to explain that to you or to tell you about it. But I'm telling you what I did do in the meantime, it was something I hope that you don't get into. I was looking for a higher power that made me comfortable for a while. In other words, I was creating this power, and what happened was, because I didn't want to go to religion, I didn't want to do this, I didn't want to do that, and I had preconceived notions of what my bias were around religion, I started carving this power down, you see? So it was no longer a higher power that has limitless possibilities for me. Know what it became? It became an image of me. What I was doing was creating a higher power that had the exact same power that I did, who, as I admitted to you, was absolutely helpless. Now, how much help can a higher power be for me if I have it that way? Not very much, friends. Not very much at all. So I had to come to grips with my prejudices around religion. I had to come to grips with... To letting this stuff go, to entertain. What is it like to have a power that I can relate to, that is providing me with the kind of grace, the kind of courage, the kind of wisdom that will move me forward in life? And for me, what I did, I went back to my faith. So here we are, powerless and Finding a higher power. Now I get to turn my will and my life over, you see? Now, I want you to imagine this for me. (coughs) These aren't just words. These are actions. What is it like to make a decision to turn your will and your life over to something? You know, sometimes I've heard in the past that all you have to do is make a decision. Because that's all it asks for, just make a decision. Well, the implication of making a decision is that you're gonna follow through with the decision. You see, that's the implication. Let me just share with you a little bit about the word to decide. It comes from a family of CID words, to decide. What is it, what is it we're deciding? Well, to decide means to kill off any other options. Think of the word pesticide. Think of the word suicide. Think of the word homicide. It means to kill off. So when I make a decision in step three, I had to kill off other options. It doesn't mean that I didn't take my my will back, because I did, and I still do. But it means that I've decided that I'm going to live a life in the care of God. Now, I want you to take an imaginary journey with me for just a moment. Imagine that you actually handed your life over to the care of God, handed your will over to the care of God, and just imagine God receiving that. What is there to worry about? What is there to complain about? What is it to be afraid about? See, in fact, when we start examining, have we really did it, we begin to realize, no, we're hanging on to it. <clears throat> we're hanging on to something that, for again, all of us can admit, that weren't very good for us, weren't healthy for us. So for us, we have to learn to open our hands up. We had to learn to, to let go of this experience that I'm in control of my life, that it's up to me. I'm an individual. I have the power. No, I don't. What I have to do is continue to give my will and my life over the care of God and trust that whatever I'm experiencing is part of the will of God. Now that's a risky, risky practice, I'll tell you, friends. But it's it's what I would call the truth. So the truth doesn't change. There's no personal truth we hear today, it's my truth. Well, there's no such thing as my truth. It's, your, it's what you think is, is a fact. Truth is universal. It doesn't change. Like the law of gravity is a truth. If you're up five balconies on a floor, it doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. If you fall, you're probably gonna die. It doesn't distinguish sometimes. You're gonna go. That's a fact. It's a truth. See, truth, needs to be done collectively, not considering it to be my truth. It is, if it's true, it happens consistently everywhere all the time. And the truth is, in step three, if I'm willing to turn my will and my life over the care of God, I am relieved of the burden of ir- restless irritability and discontent because I believe I'm being cared for. Now, friends, this is, this is so important. Have you ever been cared for? Have you ever cared for somebody? What that experience is like for you to be cared for? Have you ever observed somebody being cared for? Maybe in a hospital. Maybe in a hospice. To observe somebody being cared for. See, that's what we're searching for in step three is being cared for. Now, we cannot have any quality of life, by the way, if our past is incomplete. If we're dragging along our past with us, and we keep going back. We're tethered to the past. So in step four, we've talked about this idea of having a fact-finding mission. And I have to tell you, today I see it as an estimate. I'm, I, I refuse to put labels on myself anymore. It's an estimate. Because there's always something underneath something. give you an example of what I'm saying to you. I have a piece of paper here I want to show you. It's just a piece of paper. Just a simple three or eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And if I say to you, do you see the cloud in the paper? You would say to me, John, there's no cloud in the paper. It's just paper. And I would say to you this, If there wasn't a cloud, there'd be no rain. If there was no rain, the tree couldn't grow. And if the tree didn't grow, it couldn't be cut down and to be made paper. So although you can't see the cloud, it is an element in the paper that is unobservable. But it's there. That's the way it is with our lives. We can't possibly know. All the external influences that happen to us in this set of circumstances, we can make an estimate. Though we could be responsible for our behavior, just as the big book suggests on doing the column in step four. But we have to realize it's just an estimate. That we're going to learn more about ourselves as we continue this journey. And as we get to know ourselves, we become responsible. We stop blaming things and situations and people. We'll become responsible for our behaviors, and what a beautiful thing that is—to finally to stop this idea of scapegoating. If only my wife would do this, there'd be no more problems. If my children would follow my direction, it'd be a happy guy. If only the people would drive at a, at, the, at the speed limit. If only, if only, if only, if only. See. I had to learn what I'm responsible for. I was responsible for plenty, by the way. This scapegoating idea allowed me to continue certain behaviors without examining my responsibility for the harm that I've caused. You see, that's, this, is, this is incredible for us. We open up. We begin to see how we really have been acting. And then we get freedom from the result of that. You know, then we're asked to go speak to someone else, uh, to God and to ourselves, and to admit our faults, to be to the vulnerable and open, to share with somebody else exactly our innermost hidden secrets without any withholding. Now, I did it uh, with a priest, actually, in my hometown, and I used to joke shortly after they made him a bishop. And I used to say, well, it's because he heard my, my confession. That's why they made him a bishop. That he wasn't criticizing and condemning a guy like me. They had to elevate him. That's, that's ridiculous, of course. But anyway, I did it without, with any withholding. I wanted to have a clean slate. I wanted to be forgiven. You know, in those beautiful words, you are forgiven. When you hear that. After the work that you've done, by sorting through the stuff that we've done and to people, to ourselves, to our communities, and to hear those beautiful words, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. And to be able to receive that and let, and let it go into our souls, to allow it to go past the gates of our mind and into our hearts, we feel forgiven though. We feel clean. We oftentimes in step five, we talk about rejoining humanity, that we're no longer alone, that we have now a connection that we've missed. We have a shared human experience. Surrendering to this idea, this God surrendering constantly, allowing God to be God, me to be me, consenting to the presence of God. You see, this is the way I pray. I pray often. The way I pray is this, I'll share this with you because I, it's not because I think it's the way to pray, by the way, it's just my way. First thing I do is I do this kenosis. I do this, this, this uh, emptying, Greek word kenosis. It's the emptying of something so that I can be available to the presence of God. So I go through this, and you know what? uh, The set-aside prayer says it beautifully, by the way. He set aside all the preoccupation judgments and conclusions I have about myself, about other people, and about God's universe. And I empty myself out, so I'm available to this prayer. You see, I need to be available. I don't need to be preoccupied with what the kids are doing, what my work is doing, what about this neighbor over here, what about the argument I just had with my wife, you know, and so on and so on. I'm empty. I'm available. And I approach prayer like holy ground, sacred ground, that I needed some kind of reverence to approach this encounter. And I'm going to use the word encounter very specifically. This is an experience. This is not just words coming out of my mind or my mouth. It's an experience to be with this higher power, this God. You know, I use a story. Uh, it's not to uh, do anything other than it's a story. When Moses went to up Mount uh, Habab, whatever his name of it was, uh, that's not the right mountain, but the name just dropped out of me, to find his God, he came across a burning bush that wasn't being consumed by the fire. And that burning bush spoke to him and said, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. Now, let's not argue whether it's happened or it didn't happen. Let's let's just take the benefit of the story. This is the way I approach my prayer, that I am on holy ground, a sacred moment. And I need to be reverenced that way in connection to this power that I have in my life. I take my sandals off metaphorically. I may get on my knees. And I pray openly. And I consent to God's presence. Yes, I want you to be present. And I'm allowing you to shape me any way that you think I need to be shaped. At any time. And I'm willing to accept whatever results, if any, that comes out of this prayer. See, I'm allowing myself to be shaped. I'm not telling God how I should be. Who am I to tell God that I should be a certain way? See, I'm playing God again, you see? I can't play God anymore. Why? Because I'm powerless. I admitted I was powerless. Also, I made a decision and turned my will and my life over. Now I'm going to tell God that how should, what my life is like? No. See, I need to consent and allow. I need to surrender to this Holy Presence. And whatever comes out of it, whether I like it or not, is enough for me to say thank you or amen. Amen often ends a prayer, and it's from the Greek word, so be it. So when I say amen, I'm saying so be it, you see. Now, let me go a little bit further Step six and seven. This is what happens step six and seven. We are to give the defects over to God. I'm not to my job to work on. You know how many years I've worked on my defects of character? <laughs> All well-intentioned. Like, it wasn't because I was a bad person. not because I was a stupid person. But my ego got in the way to... To prevent me from seeing what it says in step six and seven, I'm, ha- I'm asked to give them to God. That's God's business. God is going to take care of them. Where do I put my energy and effort in its practicing principles? That's where I put my energy. I have to be responsible for my defects of character. By the way, it's not like it's not I'm not responsible for them. However. I'm not to work on them. I'm there to admit them. My imperfection. Do you have imperfection? Do you have weaknesses? I don't see anybody nodding. I might be sitting in front of perfection here, but I don't know. <laughs> but see, we all, we, we share that humanity. We share that weakness. There isn't anybody in this room or anybody in the world that's perfect. And by me thinking that I can do that, become perfect, is an act of God. See, my business is to hand it over, to have faith that maybe some things will be relieved of me and some things will be retained. And if they're being retained, there's a lesson for me to be learned, a spiritual lesson for me to be learned. And I approach defects of character very much that way. And, of course, in Steps 10, uh, we make our eight and nine make amends for our past life. And Steps 10, we just kind of review our day, right? We review to see where our experiences have brought us. There's a few things I'd like to share with you about Step 10. One is, what could I have done better? You know, we all look for what's on top of that page. We do. Selfish, dishonesty, fear, resentment. Where have I been going? And we stop there. We we need to go further in this step. We need to see what could I have done better? What could I pack in the stream of life? I start examining my my attitudes and behaviors and my thoughts and feelings as possibilities that I can be effective in my life. What can I do better? Now, can you imagine if you spent a few minutes every day taking one thing out of your life that you could have done better and actually make an attempt to do that, what your life would look like in a year. Imagine it. What a change. And quickly, I want to share with you a little bit about my meditation. This is where, for me, the... Rubber hits the road. It is the act of surrender in meditation. Why? What am I surrendering? I'm surrendering my ego. I'm, accept- I'm surrendering my thoughts. I'm surrendering my feelings. Because I'm in a place of silence. I am having an encounter with this God of the universe. And I just keep repeating my mantra word, Maranatha, Maranatha which means, as an Aramaic prayer phrase, which means, come Lord, come God. And I sit and I keep doing my, med- uh, my, my mantra word over and over again. I don't pay attention to the thoughts that are racing past me. They just they just keep going on like a billboard, like a banner ad. It's just come and go. And what I do, I just sit in my quiet and I repeat my mantra word. And what happens in that experience is this. I enter the Maga Kera, Greek, for this huge territory, this boundless, endless possibilities in, in meditation. I just enter this whole new spiritual world, this whole new landscape to be with this God and to be shaped and tailored, corrected, the way in which God wants me to be. And I am so confident that after 25 years of meditating, that I have been shaped. I have been tailored. And although my business is still unfinished, my work still continues in the realm of the spirit. I know that God is caring for me in ways in which I can't possibly even begin to understand or communicate, that I am being healed at a level of the DNA, the unconscious. The things that I carried with me, like fear for my whole life, now has purpose and meaning for me. See, I haven't gotten rid of fear, by the way. One of the fears I do have is about dying alone, as an example. It's a fear I have. I recognize it today. I say, okay, here's the fear that I'm familiar with, but I'm not going to allow it to push me around. I can dismiss it, I can let it go. And it comes and goes. Sometimes it presents itself at two in the morning. I could just let it go. I'm in the care of God. Friends, all our work, all our work that we're doing here is not about moral perfection, it isn't. It's about having the ability and the experience to reach out to help somebody. This is what this all means. If we just leave it at the level of self, it only concepts and ideas. It only materializes when we're willing to touch another person's head. Then we can say to that person, come follow me. I, I can show you another way. Like that very first meeting I went to, those words were not being expressed, but the invitation was there. Come and see. See, that's when the code, our codes of love and tolerance towards everyone shows up is we're ready to reach out and to help a still-suffering alcoholic, whether they've been sober recently or been sober a long time. Friends, I want to thank you very much for your generous and kind listening. I enjoyed very much being with you. And... uh I just offer a prayer for each of you that God's blessings go with you each and every day. And all the people that you love are touched by the hand of God that has transformed our lives through its power. Thank you very much. Thank you, john. thank you so so much um, i'm just trying to get my screen back up and running just give me two seconds john okay uh, it's not working so i'll share back um what an extensive um just such a beautiful breakdown of of how this works You know, um, you really ignited that that fire in me. With you know, my my first thought was, I don't meditate enough, and um, then I hear twenty five years of meditation, and I've got, I've I've got a lot of catching up to do. (laughs) But I've got to remember, it's it's a day at a time, and um, you know, you you brought me straight back to the power of and the importance of step three. You know, Um, just realizing throughout the day how much I can, you know, I could start off my day on my knees surrendering, you know, doing my